She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The American people now are beginning to see the walls are beginning to close in on the corrupt officials at the Department of Justice and the FBI. Many of them been, have been fired. Many of them are on leave. Many of them have been demoted. Uh, but you are you are slowly starting to see this collapse in on them, even though the mainstream media is not covering this because they seem so focused on uh, drinking the Russian Kool-Aid. This is a guy who has been, whose life has been examined by the FBI and has been screened a lot of times in his life. This looks like a cheap last minute trick by Democrats, whether you're for Kavanaugh or not. But this is why a lot of people just don't get involved in public service. Well, that's it. And now, Stacey Washington. Oh, yes. Welcome to the program. I am so excited about the interview we just completed with Dr. Alex McFarland. You guys, that was such a treat. And I think if you are interested in, in learning more and really it's answers, it's it's all of the things that we're kind of looking for all over. Dr. Alex McFarland has a real key to all of that. And you can go to alexmcfarland.com. It was a pleasure to speak with him. Uh, so right now we're going to kind of get back to politics. Mitch McConnell had something really interesting to say yesterday about Dianne Feinstein and her 11th hour allegation against Judge Brett Kavanaugh. number four. Now, an accusation of 36-year-old misconduct dating back to high school has been brought forward at the last minute in an irregular manner. It is an accusation which Judge Kavanaugh has completely and unequivocally denied. This is what he said. This is a completely false allegation. I've never done anything like what the accuser describes to her or to anyone. It is an accusation which the ranking member of the Committee of Jurisdiction has known about for at least six weeks known about for six weeks, yet chose to keep secret until the 11th hour. Neither she nor any of her Democratic colleagues chose to raise this allegation during the committee staff's bipartisan background calls with the nominee. They did not raise it, even when the name, even with the name redacted, in the 65 meetings, 65 meetings Judge Kavanaugh held with senators before his confirmation hearing, including his private meeting with the ranking member. They did not raise it, even with the name redacted. In four days of exhaustive public hearings while Judge Kavanaugh testified under oath. Wow. So the, the, the way that... Leader McConnell is laying that out. It's it's just highlights how unfair this is. And when I say unfair, obviously people can well, Stacy, it's unfair. You know, life's not fair. These are all grown ups. You know, it's war. Is it? Is it war? Is it that we are fine with what we're hearing from uh, the the organized left on how to treat people who are really offering themselves up for service to our country. As much as I disagree with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor, I, would want not, I, I wouldn't want to see their characters torn down unnecessarily to destroy them. And if you notice, this is purely a tactic on one side of the aisle. You don't see this personal attack, this attempt to really create a, 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 a detrimental life outcome. You don't see this from the political right. Sure, there's there's definitely accusations about wrongdoing. There's definitely, hey, this, this, this law was broken, that law was broken, but come on. So he goes on to say that it's not fair to either party how this was handled, and he's, he means either of the two parties involved, the accuser or the accused. It's number five. They did not raise it in the closed session. The proper forum where such an allegation could have been addressed with discretion and sensitivity. They did not raise it. A thousand plus follow-up questions that senators sent to Judge Kavanaugh in writing. 
But now, now, at the 11th hour, with committee votes on schedule, after Democrats have spent weeks and weeks searching for any possible reason that the nomination should be delayed, now, now they choose to introduce this allegation. Not through the standard bipartisan process, not by advising the Judiciary Committee colleagues and committee staff through proper channels. Oh, but by leaking it to the press. Because the chain of custody of this letter runs through the Democratic side of the Judiciary Committee. That's the chain of custody. I can't explain the situation any better than the senior senator from Maine put it yesterday evening when she said, if they believed Judge Kavanaugh's accuser, why didn't they surface this information earlier so that he could be questioned about it? And if they didn't believe her and chose to withhold the information, why did they decide at the 11th hour to release it? And that's probably going to be the intervening question, and that's going to go over like a, a, a brick. Uh, we have just new information keeps pouring in about this woman. Um, so Christine Ford is the daughter of a couple who filed a bankruptcy petition in which they had among their other assets, their home. And they were looking for one result and got another result from the judge who was presiding over their case. And that judge just happens to be judge Martha Kavanaugh, judge, um, Brett Kavanaugh's mother. So they have a personal bone to pick with this family. Now, any logical person would say, well, but if he did what she's accusing him of doing, then that kind of doesn't matter. Well, it wouldn't matter, except she didn't bring it up when she was 15, 16, 17, 18. She didn't bring it up 20 years later. She's now bringing it up only because it's politically expedient, which again goes to the veracity of the argument. So if, if she's to be believed, she has to be interested in having a... Um, it, it has to be the truth coming out. The truth has to be the primary goal here. And in that truth, there has to be a clear definition of what the intent is for bringing this up. Is it that she doesn't want a man who did this as a high schooler, who's lived an exemplary life since then to have any access to the Supreme court? Or is it that the Supreme court is a vehicle by which she can destroy this man. And she's already coming out really, she's out of the gate very weakly with, with the description of what happened. She's changed her story once. Um, she doesn't have any, um, any corroboration for it. Obviously something that happened so long ago, it would be very difficult to prove unless there were eyewitnesses. And the worst thing is she has changed the story. And even though she says she's passed a polygraph, she doesn't have a desire to really explain what happened clearly, definitively. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the, the Kavanaugh thing. They're going to have the hearing next week. So they are pushing off the vote. The Democrats do win on that front. Um, and, and one thing we need to point out is that they're, if the Democrats are able to torpedo the Kavanaugh nomination, we will not see a judge to replace um, that, that, that opening by Anthony Kennedy. And the reason we won't see it is because if the Democrats are able to take back the House of Representatives, they will just hold that seat open until 2020. And, you know, the precedent is there now because McConnell held it open for a year. They'll say they're holding it open indefinitely. And it, it's, it's a crippling. And not only that, but Judge Kavanaugh will have been utterly destroyed by it. So we have to be really, really cognizant of what's at stake here. And that's not me uh, drumming up crazy, wild conspiracy theories. There are articles already being written about how this is, you know, he's very close. They've almost got him. They're, you know, they're taking him down. Really, really nasty, 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 nasty uh, course of events. So now I want to get into... Um, the Trump administration is going to send a message to all U.S. cell phones 
And the reason that they're going to do this is because they want to test the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And this is the same kind of tone that you hear on your television, only this is going to be uh, on your cell phone. And so it's kind of on the heels of President Obama signing a law back in 2016, requiring FEMA to create a system to allow the president to send cell phone alerts regarding public safety emergencies. Now, there have been over 36,000 alerts for situations such as missing children, extreme weather and natural disasters, but never a presidential directive. Cell phone users can opt out of a natural disaster or missing children alerts. FEMA has said in a statement that alerts can only be used for national emergencies and that the president will have the sole responsibility for determining such. And um, it's about emergency management. Cell towers are going to broadcast the test for approximately 30 minutes. And the FEC has approved new rules to ensure starting in 2019 that alerts are more price- precisely targeted with links um, to photos and other important information. And so this is this is a good development, in my opinion. I think it's about time they did something like that. Um, so the other thing that I want to touch on, and, and this is kind of just an interesting continuation of what Hollywood is going through in their desire to be political instead of entertaining. And that is the Emmy ratings from last night crashing to a new low. We're talking about the ratings falling double digits even though they moved the event to Monday night because they thought Sunday nights is not working as well as it could. Let's move it to Monday. Well, NBC moved it and it didn't work. They snagged a 7.4 out of 13 result in metered market ratings. And this was for the 70th primetime Emmy awards. Lauren Michaels was the executive producer Saturday night live alumnus uh, were the main stars of the show last night. And they had big television blockbusters, HBO's Game of Thrones, which is very, it's disgusting. Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Mizell, FX's The Assassination of Gianni Versace, American Crime Story, and others. It was a three-hour extravaganza, and the ratings fell 32% in metered market ratings since the last time it was on NBC back in August 25th. To August 25th of 2014, which was also a Monday. This is pretty amazing. Like you're basically a third of the viewers who watched it last time said no, they and didn't even give it a try. So you might be wondering, well, what, what exactly happened? Well, a few people, um, and I mean, I'm just, again, you get a little tongue tied because you think to yourself, could this be real? Um, it's real. Thandi Newton said, if I believed in God, I would thank her. If I believed in God, I would thank her. So, I mean, you know, this is the kind of elevation of atheism and Thandi Newton is from Great Britain. She's not an American. So her continued foray into trying to convert Americans into this heretical atheistic worldview is ridiculous. But, you know, there, there it is. She's, um, she made that statement. Um, others made really nasty statements about Christianity. And next segment, we are going to talk about the Church of England saying that we should avoid only calling God a he. And what's interesting about that is that we have this opportunity as Christians to really hunker down and get back to the basics and in the, and these things should spur us on. These stories about people becoming more publicly atheistic, more publicly anti-God should spur those of us who know the truth to hunker down and to get closer, to draw in to the fire, get, get closer to the warmth, learn more, be more productive. Doing that is going to enable us to speak truth to these these newcomers. We have to do that. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk about that and more right here on Stacy on the Right. Head over to StacyOnTheRight.com and hit the subscribe button. We'll be back right after this. 
Maybe you've been hearing the messages from Preborn asking listeners to join together to help save babies' lives through ultrasound, and you're not sure how to respond. Here's the story of one woman who took that step. I heard about Mission Preborn just before December of last year and asked my husband if we could give at least 140. Just last week, we received our packet. My husband came in the house and he was telling me, this is our preborn packet, the ultrasounds. I started crying without even seeing them. Not only were there five babies, but one of the moms was having twins. We were just elated for that. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds, and you'll receive a story and a picture of babies' lives that were spared. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your sponsorship goes to saving babies. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby, or go to preborn.com. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Early voting for the midterm elections begins in a few weeks. That's why I had Eric Eggers on the Point of View Radio talk show to discuss his book on voter fraud. He has put together lots of facts and statistics that election officials need to consider. The potential for mischief is very great. Approximately 248 counties in this country have more names on their voter rolls than the total number of people of voting age in those counties. That is reason enough to clean up voter rolls, especially since the Supreme Court ruled that cleanup procedures, like the ones used in Ohio, are indeed constitutional. On the program, I told the story of James O'Keefe and Project Veritas. They used hidden cameras to demonstrate Election Day ballot problems, and perhaps the most notable was a 20-something white kid who was offered the ballot that should have been given to then-Attorney General Eric Holder, who is a 60-something African-American. Eric Eggers gave another story of the New York City's Department of Investigation that sent people to cast ballots on behalf of elderly citizens, felons, and people who had moved. All but two of them succeeded with no challenge or question. One of the few unsuccessful attempts occurred when an officer attempted to vote using the name of a felon listed on the rolls, only to be informed by the poll inspector that he was requesting the ballot of the poll worker's son. One study estimates that more than 5 million non-citizens voted illegally in 2008, and the book provides perspective on those who doubt those figures. The book also provides pages of documentation for the number of double votes in Florida broken down by county. The number exceeds 2,100. Any or all of these so-called voter irregularities could make the difference in some congressional and statewide races. That's why we need to pay attention to the potential problem of voter fraud. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. From Universal 1440, Unbroken, Path to Redemption, the rest of World War II hero Louis Zamperini's true story. Now playing rated PG-13. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. All right, here we are. Um, we are back, and now I want to talk about the Chinese stealing from us. And we've discussed this before, but now as more details and revelations of just how badly the theft is and how their attempt to take our technology has been utterly successful and that they plan to build their own Silicon Valley based on what they've stolen from us, basically moving the center of technology from America to China, it's pretty staggering. So here's Devin Nunez, who's at the forefront of this, the investigations and trying to get something done about it from our elected officials, talking about how the Chinese are stealing us blind. Well, I think ultimately we're going to win this trade war. Uh, I'm glad that NAFTA seems like it's on better footing now. We've made an agreement with Mexico. I believe the Canadians will come forward. It'll be good to get that solved. Uh, The fact that finally we have a president who's taking on China. This has long been needed. We've been running an investigation into, from the House Intelligence Committee into Chinese activities around the globe. We've talked about it on your show before, but what people need to really focus in on are a couple of items. One is that the Chinese are stealing us blind. So they're beginning to steal our intellectual property and they're moving it to China. In fact, I think it's very possible within just a few years, you will see the Silicon Valleys and the Austin, Texas, and those places where it's kind of a, a, a hotbed of, of think tanks and people who really develop new technology. You could easily see that code uh, be transferred over to China and you could see China become the new Silicon Valley. So that, that's first and foremost. Secondly, you have economic subversion that they're doing to countries all around the globe, including 
uh, what I think many people understand, many Western European countries where they own major financial institutions, power grids, electric companies, ports. Uh, they've loaned a lot of money to uh, countries all over the globe. And just uh, this past week, uh, you saw that uh, you had countries in Central America who have long supported Taiwan, the island of Taiwan. Uh, they actually pulled their support and switched from supporting Taiwan to China. We actually uh, went and pulled out our ambassadors, I believe, in Panama and Honduras. Wow. So while they're stealing our intellectual property, they're also making inroads with other nations by simply paying them off. They just give them some money and they give them enough to the point where they can change their allegiance from recognizing Taiwan as an independent country to recognizing China. And once they agree to do that, they get more money and they give China a uh, carte blanche to set up a seaport or set up a military installation. So for the first time in the history of the world, we're going to have a Chinese military installation in South America. Because these countries, they're desperate for cash, they're poorly run, they're corrupt, and the Chinese are taking advantage. Meanwhile, we're over here fighting about whether or not Judge Kavanaugh had some kind of horrible sexual assault when he was 17 years old. We're arguing about that instead of voting to confirm him, confirm him so we can move on to bigger issues. We're running an investigation into the president like 20, 25 percent of Americans legitimately believe that the president and the Republican Party are agents of Russia operating in the United States instead of believing that um, Hillary lost and she sowed the seeds of division that will last for decades if we let it. That's how a warm tongue operates. Sow the seeds of division and then step back and watch the fireworks. Watch people turn on each other and treat each other badly and operate within. It, it's just it's madness. So you've got all of this going on, all of this, just um, it, it's, it's kind of an amazing development. And he kind of touches on that, um, talking about how Americans have drunk the Russia Kool-Aid and what they believe about the GOP. It's number three. Uh, and I will tell you, if, if you know, as we as we continue to move forward here, uh, it's in the best interest of the of of our intelligence agencies to have full transparency on this, because you're you're really dealing uh, with with many Americans who are living in an alternative universe, uh, who have drank this Russia Kool Aid. Uh, there is a there's a large number of Americans, Marie, and I know it's probably not the people watching your show right now, but you would be shocked at the number of Americans who have drank the Russia Kool-Aid and they actually believe that Donald Trump is under control of Vladimir Putin. Right. They actually believe that House Republicans are somehow uh, under the control of Vladimir Putin. I mean, there's a, I bet 10, 15, 20% of Americans believe this and it's absolutely nuts. It is nuts. It's nuts. It's incredible. It's ridiculous. It doesn't have any foundation in the truth. And again, while Americans are, are obsessing over the possibility that Republicans and Donald Trump are controlled by Russia, Google has admitted and apologized after Android phone users noticed that the battery saver setting was remotely activated last week without their consent. Now you might say, well, who cares? Who cares? Google has actually used their ability to adjust people's phones And they've taken people's phones over and changed a setting without their permission. Google no longer owns the phones. In other words, Android phone users who paid money for phones, who own them, that is their property. Google, a separate company that produces the phone, but that no longer owns them because you've purchased the telephone, decided to click on the battery saver which affects how often apps update and work in the background. So then they went to the Reddit website to explain that they were conducting an internal test that was mistakenly rolled out more widely. The affected devices appeared to be running the Android Pi operating system. Now you might say, well, what does this have to do? Everything is connected. And what this has to do with everything is if we focus on lies and political potholes, if you will, that's a good way of calling these. They're just weird conspiracy theories. There's no way 
that the entire Republican Party is a part of Vladimir Putin's KGB or new SSB operation. It's just no way. Unless we're willing to admit that possibly all of the Democrats are are secretly employed by George Soros and are out to destroy this country. Does that sound more reasonable? Okay. So why this is important is because this is a story that won't catch even the slightest bit of air. It won't be covered by the major news organizations because everybody on the left is busy talking about how Trump has to be impeached. And there's this huge push for uh, no one to trust any Republicans because they have to be connected to Russia. I mean, how effective while the Democrats are raising up the socialist banner, uh, you can tar and feather the Republicans by saying, well, they're just they're just agents of Russia. So how did these Android phone users actually figure this out? Well, the company said, here's their, here's their quote. They said on Reddit, this is an internal experiment to test battery saving features that was mistakenly rolled out to more users than intended. We have now rolled battery saver settings back to default. Please configure to your liking. Sorry for the confusion. Many of the affected posters on Reddit described having a Google Pixel device. Other brands of Android devices were also mentioned, including Google's Essential Phone, which was designed by one of the creators of Android. Now, technology commentator Kate Bevan, editor of Witch Computing Magazine, said her phone was affected. She's quoted as saying, I noticed the other day that suddenly my battery saver was on and I was a bit puzzled by it. I don't want any app or operating system reversing decisions I've made unless I know why they're doing it. It's about transparency and consent. It may well be a good idea that a change is being made, but I still want to know why. And I agree with her. You should want to know why, but is it even that you want to know why, or is it that you want to be told, Hey, this change would benefit you. And then you make the decision again, you decide you flip the switch. Why does it have to be that they just make the decision? Cause they've still got control of your phone. So we, you know, you can learn a lot from this. Apparently these phones that we own quote fingers, we don't really own them. So that's going to be an interesting thing to see how the, how Android users respond to that, um, how the company responds to that. Now we know that they can actually change settings on your phone and that should be something that they eliminate. They should not be able to change the settings on your phone, period. They should not have that power. Now pivoting over to, this is a, a big piece of news out today uh, from Bloomberg U.S. cuts refugee cap again by 33% to a historic low of 30,000. Now, they're all up in arms clutching their pearls about it. But I think this is a fantastic development. This refugee system that we have, our refugee admission system, is being abused by those who want to see um, their own agendas put forward. The Trump administration is lowering the U.S. cap on refugee admissions to a historic low of 30,000 people for the coming fiscal year. And this is down from the maximum of 45,000 refugees that President Trump said he will allow into the U.S. during FY 2018. Now, 2018's fiscal year ends on September 30th, but the actual number is 21,000 refugees that have been admitted so far. If no new ones are admitted between now and September 30th, that will be the number. Now, Pompeo has said, he's the Secretary of State, Michael Pompeo has said that the, just one measure of U.S. generosity is our refugee system. Some will characterize the refugee ceiling as a sole barometer of America's commitment to vulnerable people around the world, but this would be wrong. Now, it's not, it's, it's in my opinion, something that has to be reevaluated. The entire system, the way it's funded, the way people are approved, how people are getting in, what happens inside of the country after they've been admitted, what kind of follow-ons are, are, are created for them and where they're being placed. If we have tens of thousands of refugees from third world countries coming into America and being placed into kind of set aside communities where they're alone and they're not interacting with Americans and they're not assimilating, just think of it. You have one or two refugee families move to town. 
those two families will notice how different their normal behaviors are from the receiving population and they will begin to adjust. And those kinds of adjustments don't happen overnight. That's called assimilation. That's where they want to learn the language. They want to learn the culture so that they can be a part of the community. But if you dump 10,000 refugees on a, on a town of 100,000, those 10,000 refugees, instead of trying to blend in, will simply create their own community because there are enough of them to create an entire functioning community where they don't even have to speak English. And then if they aren't able to get jobs because they don't speak English, don't use deodorant, don't have normal you know, hygiene behaviors like Americans, then they'll begin to go on public assistance. This is the reason why the numbers have to be cut down so that assimilation can occur. If you've ever been out at the store, any store, and seen someone dressed in traditional Muslim garb from across, you know, wherever, and you walk by and you catch wind of this different kind of a thing that's going on, you understand that that is not someone who is coming into the country and kind of picking up American habits. And are American habits perfect? No, but there are some norms that we observe here that you're not going to begin to observe if you're living in your own community. And it's not just people who are dressed in Muslim garb. It's anyone who's coming into the country from somewhere else where they don't have the same habits that we have. And that's only one example. It's the, really, it's, it's like little gangs that are set up in public schools. And the victims are usually the current minority population, which is often black kids. Black kids are being attacked by MS-13, by roving gangs of Mexican immigrant kids, and by Somalian kids that are coming in in large droves and taking over school systems and basically bullying the black kids. It's a, a horrible situation. And I'm kind of exhausted by the fact that in all of these things, the communities that seem to be most negatively impacted are the black community. It's unbelievable. And, and instead of addressing this, instead of saying, you know, this just isn't right. People are like, no, we just need more. We just need more refugees. So uh, apparently the pearl clutching individuals who get all of their income from having NGO status with the federal government and getting all these payments Refugees International. It's just a scam. He says the refugee ceiling of 30,000 is appalling. Eric Schwartz. Eric Schwartz is president of Refugee International. And he says the number is appalling. And continues the administration's rapid flight from the proud U.S. tradition of providing refugees uh, refuge to those fleeing persecution around the world. Like this is the only place they can come to. The only place in the, in the world that anyone can come to is uh, America. The current world refugee population is now at 25 million. How about if some of the 25 million go to China? That's a nation that has a ton of money. They have enough money to bribe other nations to allow them to put up seaports and things like that. Someone else has to be able to accept some of the flow as well. America can't be the only place that's taking in refugees. I applaud the decision. Um, we'll see what they're able to do with it. They'll see what they're able to accomplish with it. I think it's kind of interesting that that's the tack that's being taken. Now, the Senate Judiciary Committee urged the administration in a letter to clarify when and how it would consult with Congress on refugee admissions goals. Um, so, you know, we'll see. We'll see what ends up happening with it. Um, I'm hopeful that they'll be smart about this and really, really consider the communities that are receiving the refugees. And maybe, maybe one of those deep dive surveys is in order where they go around and not just pull the refugees themselves and the communities that they've been placed in, but talk to some of the people who live in those communities and find out how assimilation is going, how the, the flow has impacted their, their day-to-day lives. The people who are receiving the refugees into their communities are taxpayers and voters and citizens and have rights. We have a right to have a say in this. All right, when we get back, we'll have the final segment of the show. Stay right there. 
What does it take to live an uncommon life? Here's former Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. Fans, players, and media defend trash talk as just part of the game that helps everyone get psyched up to play. But there's no such thing as trash talk in God's view. We are responsible for everything we say, and what you say goes a long way in defining who you are. Any stray word or comment can undermine our witness for Christ to people who hear what we say firsthand. Your witness is demonstrated not only by what you do and in the way you live your life, but it's also by the words that come out of your mouth. Make those words a witness worthy of the one whose story you are truly telling. Tony Dungy, author of the popular Uncommon book series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. I'm not so certain we have as much time as many of us think. It's high time for the body of Christ to return with a fire lit up under us to proclaim the truth of God's word. To proclaim the truth of sin and repentance and not coming from a high lofty position but telling the truth as such were some of us. We have to do that. We have to. But what happens is, and I, I call this first world problem, uh, we have this epidemic of churchianity in America to where we are far more accepting and far more willing to embrace the trappings of church life even if they're void of the presence and power and fire of Christ. And I would say to you just as the Bible says that we can have a form of godliness while simultaneously at the exact same time deny the very power of the gospel. Of the gospel. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter weekday afternoons at 5 central on Urban Family Talk. Donald Trump's America. President Trump says he wants Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh to go through at the highest level and with support from Americans. And I think to do that, you have to go through this. If it takes a little delay, it'll take a little delay. Uh, it shouldn't certainly be very much. The White House is standing by Kavanaugh amid an allegation from a California professor of sexual misconduct when both she and Kavanaugh were in high school. Christine Ford told The Washington Post Kavanaugh pinned her down during a house party in the early 1980s and tried to take off her clothing. Kavanaugh denies ever doing anything like that, and a White House spokesman says the judge is looking forward to a hearing where he can clear his name. The Senate Judiciary Committee is expected to hear from Kavanaugh and Ford next Monday in a public hearing. Republican leaders plan to committee vote later this week and final confirmation for Kavanaugh by the end of the month. On Capitol Hill, Jared Halpern, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Let's uh, pivot a little bit and talk about social justice. Albert Muller uh, was speaking at a university about social justice, and he had some interesting things to say, and, and I thought it would be uh, a great kind of thing to unpack here on the show. If you don't know who he is, Dr. Richard Albert Moeller Jr. is an American historical theologian, the ninth president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he's been described as one of America's most influential evangelicals. And this was a pretty interesting speech that he gave. Um, here he is talking about social justice. The question of of victims and uh, the recognition of real victims. Um, the, the, the statement itself uses language like entitled victims. Certain people should not be told that they are entitled victims of, uh, of, of social structures. Um, well, certainly we have an entire entitlement identity politics victim culture and industry out there. Uh, that we can recognize for what it is, but the reality is there are also real victims who really are victims and have been victims, and there are victims right now of social forces of oppression. And uh, that's just a matter of fact. Just because those on the 
radical left point to everything as oppression doesn't mean that nothing is oppression. And if you read the Bible, you understand that in a fallen world, we're the only people who have a theology and not merely a political ideology to explain why we understand this. And by the way, this means that we understand oppression not as due to massive economic uh, uh, pressures and a, and a system merely of corrupt people in uh, seeking a, a place of superiority and, and greater economic wealth and then to protect that. We believe it is because of a serpent and a garden and because Adam and Eve sinned and thus everything is corrupted. So in other words, we don't believe there's some safe place untouched by this oppression, nor do we believe that we will ever have before Jesus comes a society free of oppression, but we do have a responsibility to be honest about what real repression, oppression looks like and to speak on behalf of the victims and not on behalf of the oppressors. So this is a complex kind of a subject. Um, when, when we hear this kind of language, automatically some people will be very upset and some people will, um, some people will say, well, you know, there's no place for this. Um, there is a place for this. There's a place for the discussion of how we treat each other. But I think the terms that are being used are distracting away from the true mission. Our true mission in all things is to live right and honorably before God, which means sometimes we will possibly fail at that. In fact, we know that we will. But does that mean that when we've failed at something, we need an entire reorientation of everything that we think and believe? And that's what's happening with, with the social justice warrior movement. It's, it's basically, first of all, you can't dis- decide that anyone's done anything wrong. And so the sufferers, the people who are suffering, who, true victims who are actually suffering from something um, are kind of pushed off to the side. They're shunted out in, into the hinterlands in favor of this ideology that elevates things that, that have no sense, that elevates bad behavior, wrong behavior that elevates anything that kind of flies in the face of not just morality, but flies in the face of, of just good behavior, just the way you treat people, just the way you behave in, in common company. It takes innocent people like one of the primary groups that's really being attacked right now are men in general, Men in general are being treated as if every, every man you encounter is just a sexual predator, someone who has previously committed some sexual immorality. That's impossible. It can't be that every single man we encounter, every teenage boy, every, every man is just you know, a horrible misogynist or a misogynist in waiting. That kind of blanket negativity is the same form that we used to see Against women, all women are, you know, too feminine, too, too weak-minded, too emotional. The reality is that women have shown ourselves to be very competent and able to do many, many wonderful things to contribute to our society. It's when we kind of take the mantle of a movement and toss it over any wrong that we find that it becomes a blanket endorsement for completely obliterating any person or any ideal to which someone who ascribed to it made a mistake. And we're seeing this, it's, it's being elevated. It's being created. It's being put into this, this kind of a, a mantra that is, is it's, I mean, it's staggering how quickly these movements, quote unquote, can become legitimized and then have power. We saw that with uh, this huge conference. It, it was held here in St. Louis. It was called Revoice Conference, 
that was supposed to support, encourage, and empower gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, and other LGBT Christians so they can uh, flourish while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. Well, first of all, God never ever describes a Christian by their sexuality in the Bible. You are not a gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, or LGBT Christian. You're just a Christian. Now we can use adjectives to describe particular Christians, but as an identity, there is no such thing as an LGBT Christian. The LGBT is the sin. Christian is the identity in Christ. So we have to stop allowing the adjustment of our language to such a degree that this becomes the norm, that this becomes the thing. Now, I obviously the Revoice Conference is, is saying that there are people who are suffering from these afflictions who need to be welcomed in. They need to be given an opportunity um, to be accepted. <laughs> Absolutely. But not accepting the sin. Not accepting the idea that somehow we do need to change marriage, that somehow we do need to accept these things, that we need to allow people who are practicing homosexuals or practicing the LGBT lifestyle to be in leadership in churches, to represent the church to teach others in the church. That's not biblical. There's no way that LGBT can be a a descriptor of a type of a Christian as an identity in light of what scripture says about who we are in Christ, what God created male and female and how male and female are required in order for there to be marriage. Historic Christian teaching about sexuality and gender can never square with LGBT, ETC, XYZ, whatever. It just can't. Women and men who are involved in any kind of sexual sin, whether it's living together outside of marriage sexual relations outside of marriage, homosexuality, lesbian, gay, transgender behaviors, all of those things are sinful violations of scripture and cannot be Christian identities. Which brings us to this ridiculous bishop saying that the Church of England should avoid calling God a he. He said he read a survey And the survey found that young Christians think God is a man. The research was done by YouGov and half of 18 to 24 year old Christians believe God was a man with just one in three over 65 believing the same thing. This survey was done uh, in Great Britain. The right Reverend Rachel Treweek Bishop of Gloucester, the Church of England's first female diocesan bishop said, I don't want young girls or boys to hear us constantly referring to God as a he. We have to be mindful of our language. She raised concerns that non-Christians could feel alienated from the church if its public pronouncements use solely male language to describe God. So here is a female bishop of the Church of England saying she wants to change scripture. For me, particularly in a bigger context in all things, she says, whether it's that you go to a website or you see pictures of all white people or whether you go to a website and see the use of he when you could use God, all of these things are giving subconscious messages to people. So I'm very hot about saying we can always look at what we're communicating. She calls it a growing problem. I mean, it's, it's another one. Uh, Reverend Sally Hitchner, Anglican chaplain at Brunel University, said that it's heretical to say that God is only a man. She said there was a movement across the national church with events organized to emphasize the feminine nature of God. I think it's uh, obviously 
a sign of the times that people, they don't just want to change what God's word says. They don't want to change only the laws and the precepts that govern Christianity. People who are engaged in adjusting the word of God to suit their whims eventually need to also adjust God himself to move him around in such a way as to comfort themselves and make things easier on themselves. A softer side of God, a God who could be a man or a woman really goes right along with redefining male and female, redefining gender, redefining marriage, redefining, uh, you know, kind of masculinity and femininity. It goes along with all of that. It's not a surprise that this is the tack that's being taken. The, the question is, what, what, what will the answer be? Will we decide to stick by what God's word says? Or will we allow yet, yet another quick change to what we believe? To how we interact with God's word? So... Dr. Mueller had other things to say. It was a pretty, pretty wide ranging discussion. He had this Q and a, and he answered questions about social justice. Um, there are a lot of different answers and I'll definitely put this up on the Facebook page. Um, what are your thoughts on the rising tensions between Christians on the issues of social justice? Did you discourage Southern seminary faculty from signing the statement on social justice and the gospel? What parts of the social justice and the gospel statement did you disagree with? Those are just a few of the topics that he, um, he covered. And here's a quote. He points out one of the confessional standards of the Southern Seminary, Article 15 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And Article 15 says, all Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphan, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and his truth. I think it's a pretty profound thing to consider in light of social justice. And it's hard work to do because the rise of the social justice movement is rooted in a desire for people who feel that they've been wronged to force other people into right behavior. As Christians, we should be living rightly before God, which would reduce the incidence of these types of, of actions. By the same token, there's a lot of justification of immorality and sin that's present in social justice warrioring, and it's that that we have to rail against and stand against because we can never, in the pursuit of treating others well, condone or elevate people not abiding by the law, taking care of themselves, honoring God in their work by working as unto the Lord people who refuse to work, etc. It's a tightrope, one that we can only walk if we're hand in hand with Jesus. Thanks for being here today. Fantastic to have your ears. Goodbye from the heartland. Talk to you tomorrow.